0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Oliver. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And we're currently in a series called One Faith. Everybody say, One Faith! One Faith! It comes out of Ephesians 4, where Paul just talks about that um, uh, this thing called faith isn't really just uh, unique to Christianity or even religion, that faith is a part of life. Like, um, no human being knows everything. And what you do with the things that you don't know is very significant to the decisions that you make on a daily basis. Uh, we don't get to be excluded from the faith uh, classroom. Um, but Paul encourages us, the Holy Spirit encourages us, Jesus encourages us that God has not left us alone. And he knows everything. And that in those gaps that he has given us his word, uh, his truth, his spirit. And if we can lean into those things with faith, um, that, that he can use all things for his glory um, and our good. Um, So I want to invite you guys to open up to Hebrews chapter 11, Um, just as I pray for us once more, Holy Spirit, as we just open up the pages of your Bible, we declare in faith that these scriptures are not dead, that they are living, that they're active, that they're breathing, and that they host the very presence and truth of God. And uh, it's our desire that um, we would not just be hearers, but doers of your word, that we would lean in, that we would listen, that we would believe, God, that we have belief and we have unbelief, but God, help our unbelief grow into belief, and and we thank you for the grace that awaits those that seek you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 11, verse 31 says, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Rahab is the only of the 16 members of the Hall of Faith that is a woman. She is uh, explicitly mentioned as a prostitute in some of the old parts of the Old Testament The the translation could have meant innkeeper or, you know, referring to the place that she lived in the wall of Jericho to host other people. But the New Testament exclusively says that this is a woman not only of not part of the Jewish faith, an outsider, but also a woman of ill repute, a prostitute and a harlot. And um, she appears in the pages of this story because upon the crossing of the Jordan River, as Joshua entered with the people of Israel as... as, um, Andre spoke about last week that um, as they entered into the, into the land of Jericho, before that happened, emissaries, uh, spies were sent into land. Two of them were sent into the land. And upon meeting uh, some of the people and citizens in Jericho, one of the first people that those two spies met sent by Joshua was this woman, Rahab. And Rahab, kind of like you'd maybe read about in the Diary of Anne Frank, Um, decided, maybe just in a a whim, maybe in a stroke of faith, just in a, uh, I don't know, like in an impulsive decision, to when the king sent word to ask where the spies were, lied about where the spies were, they were hiding in the flax above in the roof where she lived, she said that they had exited already, and therefore saved and spared their life. But what was critical to that is that a deal was made between the spies and Rahab, so much so that because of this woman's faith, because of her decision, whatever motivated it, whatever compelled her, uh, uh, to keep these spies safe, they made a, a decision or, uh, a pact at that time that when Jericho was taken, which it would, after uh, Andre spoke about they surrounded the wall seven times, the walls found, fell down, the actual walls that she lived in fell down, she would be spared, not only by Almighty God, but also by the people of God when they uh, invaded the, the city of Jericho and the Promised Land. So referencing in Joshua 2, starting in verse 1, I'll read it to you, it'll be on the screen. This is how the story unfolds in the Old Testament. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly, and I did Google this word to make sure that I pronounced it the right way, and I got a lot of snickers out of my kids. Shatim, I just said, Lord, I can't skip. I don't want to skip your word. I have to read it. I just, I don't know. I just got to read it. That's part of my job. Go view the land, especially Jericho, and they went and came into the houses of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told that the king of Jericho himself, some scholars believe that she would have been living there almost on the government's dime, and she would have had to have been extra loyal to the government, her livelihood, obviously her life was at stake, and she would be asked by this question to either tell the truth and forfeit the lives of the spies or lie and commit treason, um, penalized by death. Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men uh, who have come to you who entered the house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. I wonder in that moment, did she have a second guess? Did she hesitate? Did she have reluctance? Was she assured? Did, she, did her voice shake? I don't, I don't know the level of faith, but there was enough faith for her that she had known enough about God and enough about the stakes on the table and enough about what was at at hand that she was able to protect the spies even by telling a lie. Verse 5. And when the gate was about to close at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly. She extends the lie, even helping to give more time and margin of safety for the men. Go and look for them. They're off in that direction, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof uh, and hidden them under stalks of flax. Flax would have been used to make linen or cotton. They would dry them out on the roof, and so they were hidden under there, especially white linen, which kind of has a little bit of a biblical undertone of righteousness and forgiveness. But nonetheless, their spies are not out the gate. They're up on the roof, hidden under the flax. And by the way, what would it take to trust a prostitute, an outsider, somebody that, according to your, your law, uh, should have been stoned to death based on her occupation? What would it take to trust a woman like that with the very uh, providence and... Um, Success of God's mission. So they're hiding underneath the flax. And so then the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone up. Something about the, the faith of Rahab catches God's attention to let her be one-sixteenth of the, of the list of the first people that come to mind when it comes to faith. And she is uh, a very noteworthy, um, outstanding person in the fact that not only is she a woman, uh, other than Sarah, who is just basically known as, you know, Abraham's wife, you know, that was her legitimacy on the list, she stands on her own two feet in the hall of faith, a prostitute, a woman, an outsider, and she is recognized for her faith. We need to let it sink in that she was an outsider, she had never known God, she was not part of the covenant of God, she didn't know the law of God, and she... She she was a woman, if she was judged by the law of God of ill repute, she would have been a sinner, again, penalized by death because of her lifestyle. But something about faith is so important to God that no matter the person and no matter the past, that an ounce of faith could literally place a lifetime of sin in the eyes of God. So much so that God would would recognize this faith, put her inside this line and lineage of other people that had done these great things, these great patriarchs of the faith. Here nestled in the verses is is Rahab, the, the meek, small prostitute who made one great decision in what otherwise looks like a lifetime of regrets. And God is able to not only take away her past, but give her a future in a family that she was never born into. And this is what it says this is the way that our God looks at faith. This is how much faith matters to God. God doesn't need a woman to help his spies. He just split the Red Sea. He just split the Jordan River. He doesn't need a prostitute's help. But yet faith before God is so significant that in Matthew 1.5 it says this, her husband that she would eventually marry, at Salman, was the father of, Her and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. So we don't know much beyond the story, but she was not only not killed, she was incorporated into the family of God, married into the lineage of God, and then the bloodline would follow on, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king, On and on into several generations, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph and husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Imagine being a prostitute, an outsider, somebody that didn't know diddly squat about God, caught one word of a testimony from God and had one opportunity in a window to practice faith. An outsider, not part of the covenant of God, now is brought into the very covenant of God, not only treated as an equal, but elevated to the very lineage of the Savior of the world. That's how much faith matters to God. That's how much faith can do in your life. A moment of faith, an ounce of faith for a lifetime of pain and regret can change everything. That's what her her life preaches to us. I I have a friend of mine uh, who's now 50 years old, and she's very beautiful. And I look up to her a lot, and I respect her, and I have a deep amount of affection for her. known her for a long period of time. But she told me a story one time about an important moment that changed the rest of her life. It was, a, it was a formative, defining moment. It not only reflected who she was, but it, it defined the course of what would happen into her future. And, and she said that she was about 16, and she lived in Indiana, and she um, got a summer job, and she was really happy about the job because most of other, her friends kind of got silly Baskin-Robbins jobs, or they worked at kind of Dunkin' Donuts, but she got to work at like the car dealership, you know, down the road. And so um, she, she would, you know, get dressed up and really, you know, loved trying to be kind of an adult and kind of be a little bit older than she was and be part of something that she felt like was important, something that people like her dad would respect, and she just really felt great about the job. And her job was basically, she was a very pretty young girl, was to kind of dress nice and be like a hostess kind of and just invite people into the store. And if they were looking for somebody to help sell the car, she would guide them to the right place. She was, she was in charge of the front office and hospitality, and she did her job with kindness, but also with a lot of professionalism. But she said one day there was a very significant event, an event that probably if you were in the store, it wouldn't have mattered to you and wouldn't have even taken notice of it because it really didn't look like any type of transaction at all. It's the type of thing that you'd probably see going out to lunch this afternoon. And she said she was standing there and a a gentleman came in. He was about 40 and he had nice silver kind of ish gray hair and he was respectable and probably somebody around town that you would know. I don't know, maybe he was a you know, a principal or or a politician or somebody that had, you know, kind of a, a level of character and reputation. And as he passed by, he simply said these simple words, hey, beautiful, and walked on. And she said that was the end of the conversation. She never spoke to the guy again, never saw him again. But something very deeply powerful happened inside of her. And that was she decided that from then on, she would fail at maybe a hundred other things that she would try and do and endeavors in her life. But she would never not be noticed as beautiful to men. She said it felt so good to be recognized by a man, a man that was older and had stature so, so, so powerful that, that she was seen as something valuable and beautiful. And she said, from then on, it's taken me, you know, 35, 40 years to look backwards and recognize that that moment, although he would never remember and nobody would ever remember, was a moment that I would carry for better or for worse for the rest of my life. I will always be recognized as beautiful. I will make the decisions, the sacrifices, the things that I need to do to be recognized and continue in that identity. And identity is a powerful thing in that way. Identity uh, doesn't have to be mitigated, it doesn't have to be controlled by circumstances, it doesn't have to be you know, corralled or guided. It can be just the, the, the words, or not even necessarily the words, but the way you feel around someone. I heard a teacher once say that it's not really that you remember what people say to you in your past, it's you remember how they feel, how they make you feel. I bet you if I were to ask you about key identity defining moments in your life right now, and if I were just bring up a question like third grade, and you're in third grade, and you're sitting in the desk, and maybe you won't remember the name of the teacher or what you were studying, but I bet you you can remember the feeling you had in third grade. You either felt smart or you felt dumb. It's a formative moment. There's statements being made there. They're not necessarily overt. You don't write them down, but you carry that with you, and that becomes a sort of normalcy and a home for you. Either you felt smart or you felt dumb. You, you, you felt on the, on, the, on the athletic team. You felt like the coach would go to you or wouldn't go to you, take you out of the team or he wouldn't take you off the team. He lets you play or not. You felt athletic. You felt strong or you felt weak. You felt beautiful. You felt beautiful some of the time when you wore your hair in this way or dressed up this way or you didn't feel beautiful when you dressed this way. And sociologists like call this, I can't remember the name of the guy, but sociologists call this the looking glass self, that actually our, our identity doesn't really come from the inside out. Our identity in a socialized theory is that we're actually not who we think we are. We're who the top five people in our life tell us that we are. The top five most important people. And those people don't even have to be necessarily people you know. They could be a celebrity or they could be a spokesperson or they could be a writer or an author. But it's those people who are socially telling us who we are. And identity is a powerful thing. For good or for evil, identity becomes our home. It tells us what to expect. It tells us what we're worth. It tells us what to expect for others. And so in that way, identity can become a home, but it also can become a prison cell. It can become a box around our head. It can become a, a boundary line. We can sort of look at our prison and, and, and not recognize that it's a prison, and not recognize the fact there's no windows to look out and see something differently. We just sort of get boxed into what it is that we believed once we were six or ten, and we never know what we don't know, so we don't know to ask it. And we just believe the impossible is impossible. We just believe that change is not inevitable. We just believe that we'll always be the same. We'll just believe we're always stuck and there will be nobody that can really tell us differently because identity is even louder than words sometimes. So we take the little table, the bistro, let's say, that was in the little prison and we kind of just throw up a, you know, checked tablecloth on it. And we put a little TV in the corner and we've got our phone or whatever and we're okay. But we try to make home out of it, but it's just... It, it is, a prison is something that doesn't allow freedom, and it doesn't allow freedom. It just encapsulates. It just boxes in. It just you know, is a self-fulfilling prophecy, and we, just get, and we just get stuck. So the Scriptures tell us in Joshua 2 later on, and it's a long passage, so I don't have time to read. But the Scriptures tell us that, that Rahab literally lives in the wall. So if you can think of the walls of Jericho, which are these fortified walls of a very robust, economically strong military city, there's these buttresses and this retention wall that would lie on the bottom and in between the, lo- the wall and the gaps was, was a, a series of communities, but, but Rahab, one of these, the lowest of the socioeconomic chain, was living in the wall potentially giving information and, and being kind of over as a watchman part-time as well as being a harlot, making her way. We don't know much of her history to help watch out what's going on in the wall, but we know that she lived in the wall, and then that wall was not only a metaphorical prison, but it probably felt like a physical prison. That in that day, if you're a woman, let alone a harlot in any civilization, she was very much stuck. And, and what's worse about being stuck is that it wasn't just that she was, you know, just physically stuck, like she couldn't just come and go as she pleased. She was economically tied, obviously, to the powers of a woman, and that day can't just run away and start a job and move to L.A. or something like that. Like, she's, she's stuck. But even more than that, we could probably assume, much like many people at the bottom of the caste system back then, she was, she was socially stuck and she was spiritually stuck. She, she didn't know who she was. And what was worse is she didn't have a window, spiritually, outside of her own station in life to know any better. The scriptures hit us this morning in the way that they explain that the word of God, by way of us seeing faith responded in Rahab's life, somehow the inevitable, omnipotent, omniscient, powerful, relentless, can't stop between the walls of Jericho, can't stop between the Red Sea, the the overarching, omnipotent, knowing all things and all powerful things, was able even to saturate into her wall and in some way cultivate faith in a prostitute woman of an enemy army. So much so that when the spies were to come to her, she would already have belief and faith. This is what she says in her response when the spies ask for her help. She says in verse, I assume it's 9, Joshua 2, it'll be on the screen. She says, I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting with fear because of you. These are strong words of a woman that truly wants to get her point across is we want you to know that we're melting in fear. And in fact, the spies, they come back, they risk their life to get information and that is actually the information. It's the words right out of Rahab's lips that he says the spies say to to Joshua. They're melting in fear. The enemies are trembling before us. They've heard of our reputation and they are terrified. Verse 10, it says, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sahan and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear. And everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God of heaven and above all Earth and everything below it. Now depending on the scriptures, the way that people respond to God in different situations are very different. Most of the people in the list of the hall of, hall of Faith are all responding to God in faith inside the context of covenant, but Rahab didn't. In other words, Noah, upon building the boat, already had a relationship with God, it said he walked with God and was friends with God, and he was known as a righteous man before God. So he had a relationship and a rapport. When God spoke to Noah and asked him to build a boat, he had a sort of credibility with God that Abraham decided to cut covenant with God and and started from the relationship and then acted into obedience and Joshua and so forth and all the other names except for Rahab. Rahab's quite different in the sense that she responded and needed to respond because of her circumstance to the fear of the Lord before she ever responded to the love of the Lord. But the basis of her, her faith started from the context of, I'm coming towards God because I'm melted in fear. And that's a great paradox. I mean, Timothy talked about it earlier, about the nature of fear within faith. And Andre readdressed the conversation of the the inadequate or the kind of illegitimate nature of fear. There's a difference between fearing of man and fear of the Lord. It says in Proverbs 1 that the fear of the Lord begins all wisdom. The idea of shuddering before the almighty God of angel armies is an okay feeling to have. And many people felt it. And so I think in in, in one point, to learn from from Rahab's faith is to understand that sometimes God comes to speak to us in the place of comfort and familiarity, but sometimes God needs to and has and continues to speak to us in the level of unfamiliarity and fear. Like there's things that um, my wife, you know, Kyra, or you have a spouse or or a friend, will bring to you. And um, like recently, we had a conversation after a party, and she said... uh, she just kind of had this comment of like, I kind of had to dig around and ask questions. And I was like, kind of like, what are you thinking? Or what are you, you know, she kind of was feeling off. I could tell in the night and kind of disconnected. And she was just kind of like, she was like, you kind of talked a lot at that party. (laughs) And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, that's not usually your thing. But like, are you feeling okay? Are you feeling insecure? I mean, she's just being caring and compassionate about it. And I'm just, like, Mr. Defensive about it. Like, what do you mean? I'm Mr., you know, like, I'm a two on the Enneagram. I'm an FJ. Like, I'm the Mr. Listener. Like, I don't, I don't not listen to people. Like, if I'm going to do something wrong, it's going to because my Michael Scott, I listen too much. And I love too much. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just, like, all defensive about it. But the Lord will oftentimes make you most uncomfortable in the things you think you're strongest at. And that's the place where you get the most prideful and it will feel the most unfamiliar when it comes to you. But Rahab, her blessing is implicit in in her ability to listen to a foreign God. It would be the equivalent of somebody sharing the gospel with you for the first time in Japanese or in in Korean or German. Like it's it's the idea that it's it's not just who I am. It's like literally something that's foreign. That's something that's other than me. Something that is so unpalatable and, and different and caught me off guard and alienating. But somehow I'm drawn near it. This is the type of faith that seems to be so interesting and compelling about Rahab. Continuing on, she says in verse 12 to strike up the bargain, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give Give me a sure sign that you will spare our lives, my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. This is a woman whose faith was birthed in the fear of the Lord. It was a woman who was being stripped of everything she knew in the midnight hour. She had to make a decision, do or die. My family's life is at stake. Do I choose all in or do I choose all out? The fear of the Lord was very much a part and process of, of Rahab stepping in to faith and covenant and love with God. And, and this is the way that I, f- I feel like... August 24th, 2015, when my, when my mother-in-law lost her husband, you know, of 30 years. Like this is the kind of thing that shakes your faith and forms your faith at the same time. And we can't expect that following God, and we've been really talking about this theme all throughout. Like it's going to go on and talk about how faith leads to beheading in the scriptures and how faith leads to losing of children and how faith leads to, leads to, 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 the, to the splitting of relationships and to great persecution. We can't, if we only expect faith to come to us in the form of comfort, and not the form of fear or the form of, of foreignness. We will miss some of the blessing, I believe, that we're supposed to get to. Rahab was saved by the skin of her teeth. She's like, she's like the woman who, when the Lord warned her, right? Like Lot and his wife, that if you were to turn around even for an instant to look at your past, you would be, you'd be turned into salt. Like this is, the, this is the call of the Lord. And somehow Rahab finds faith there. And then the, the spies agree with her. Our lives for your lives, the man assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully in the Lord, uh, when the Lord gives us this land. So Rahab has this encounter with God and simultaneously realizes not only his eminence and his power, but also the futility of where she is. And she doesn't know what the promise is of the future. Much like Abraham, it's much in the curriculum of faith. Like, I'm gonna cause you to leave the thing that you have, the bird in your hand, to go after the thing I'm not telling you about yet. I'm going to cause the the promised land to become clear as you walk, but it won't become clear until you leave, until you take a step. And and God's not just asking her to change her actions or change her attitude or change her, you know, do one thing, go left or go right. He's asking her to leave everything she knows. But something about the word of God that had penetrated that tower and penetrated her heart made her know that leaving what she had to go with God was was the best choice that she would ever make and have no regrets in it. And she would wait, I don't know how many days it would have been, a couple of days, I'm sure, days and nights, fearing for her life, wondering if the king would have found out, could have put her, her life on the line or death on the line. But something about the power of God, when she testified to, this, to these men, she said, you don't only have a God, you have the God. In a polytheistic culture, you have the God. And all other gods, if there are other gods, which probably are not, are going to answer and bow to this God. And I've decided with my life, not only my decisions and my belief systems, but with my actions, that all of me is leaving everything I know for the past that I have for a future that I have no idea what looks like. That's the power of God, and that's what's on, on the stakes for, for Rahab. I remember when um, I first came to the Lord, um, none of my family is... Um, you know, what I, you know, what you'd consider a believer necessarily, except for Uncle Peter, which I've told you guys about before. But, but much of my life was at around 15 when I came to the Lord was, was very mysterious. I had a youth pastor that I looked up to and I had a scripture that just screamed at me in 1 Corinthians 13 and would captivate my heart. I just knew that whatever it cost, I knew that that word was true. And I knew that everything else had to be a lie in light of what I read about the love of God. And so I remember pouring over their scriptures at night, and I remember driving myself by myself to youth group and driving myself at 15 to go to Sunday morning church. And in Indiana, it's not necessarily a progressive place, but it's also not the Bible belt. And typically, if you're going to church like you're going for a reason and not everybody just kind of goes in a cultural manner, it very much was an alienating thing. And it wasn't like I just sort of like ditched my friends because I didn't want to be friends with them. It was just the natural course of obedience that the way my values and the way that I was looking at the world and my goals and my attitudes were just different, and it wasn't a fit anymore. So the last couple years of my high school career were like in the library by myself, not because I'm a loner or because I want to be isolated. I love people, but it's just that I didn't have a home there anymore. Like it was basically me and Kyra, you know? And I remember even going into freshman year when Kyra like went off to a different school and I was there in Indiana, Bloomington, and I was doing my thing in freshman and sophomore year. And even the church there and even like the group of of Campus Crusade for Christ, like I didn't necessarily find home there. Some of the way that I felt called and my values and some of the things, I mean, it wasn't like a a disagreement or a bad thing, but it just wasn't home. and, And it very much felt like kind of strange or different, foreign. And it was, I just remember it was like it took four years and for some of us it might take six years or eight years to find an actual home and community. But I knew that my obedience meant that I had to leave whatever I had and do whatever I needed to do to follow the word that I had in my heart. And so as we kind of kind of close up this series on one faith, there's one more sermon I want to preach next week on faith. I'll tell you about that at the end. But as we kind of close up the series... I want us to really get a glimpse of Rahab's life. I think it's special, and I almost think that God has a special pleasure over this verse. Because Rahab is not only asked to change her actions and her attitude, Rahab is asked to change her identity. She's asked to leave what she believes. She's asked to leave her home and not really know what it would cost and if faith, it seems like, if you read Hebrews in almost a summative sense, faith is less about what's measured by God of effectiveness and more about the cost to the individual person. In that case, Rahab was asked to pay a high price and put a great risk on the line, not just to do one thing and maybe fail at it, but to literally give an answer and a reply to the king and, and cause treason to her king and to her family in order to step in to the family of God. And this is really what I think is important about faith, because faith isn't only trying to influence your actions, it's trying to infuse and infiltrate your identity. If faith has its way, its goal, its agenda, is not just to have your actions or your obedience, it's to have your identity. To have the entire way you look at the world. And this is why it's so, so difficult for us, because I think oftentimes we're asking God to try to have faith and move on the outer world, but we very seldom ask God and have faith to change the inner world. From a pastoral sense, or just doing faith, you've probably seen this before, and even of yourself, you'll kind of come to the Bible study or come to the sermon, and you'll reflect and say, man, that's a really great reminder of what I already know. But the danger of familiarity is that it doesn't allow God to be foreign. It doesn't really permit him to be fully, wholly set apart and different, and assumes that God thinks like I think, and therefore really puts a prison and a wall around me changing, and so the, 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 the writer and what the story is preaching to us is that God speaks to us in familiarity, but he also speaks to us in foreignness, and we need to let him do that. We need to be aware of the things that we don't see. We need to be aware of our perpetual blindness. We need to be aware of the fact that if we're going to grow, we have to admit that we don't know everything, and then we can learn. So here's my example. like, If you're struggling in a financial way, let's say, Probably the voice of the Lord, because finances ultimately aren't just about dollars and cents, they're about the heart, they're about the way you perceive the world, they're about the way you value money. Probably the word of the Lord in your life would come to you in in what would sound like a foreign voice. It would come to you in a friend, or maybe even somebody you would consider an enemy. And the Lord would test you, are you humble enough to weed out the 90% of the offense to find the 10% of the truth? We're so ready to be the teacher, but so unwilling to be the student. And the word will come to you because God is good and he's always speaking his truth for anybody that wants to hear it. But the problem is not that we don't hear it. It's the hardness of heart to receive it. If God wanted to speak to you about the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, he'd probably have to speak to you in a way that felt foreign for a while. And if we have no margin for foreignness, that we just expect God to speak our language, to talk to us and level with us in the way that we like, we probably won't change. We probably won't grow. And remember that the word of the Lord didn't come to comfort you. That's not the goal of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is here to conform you to Christ. And comfort is the means to conforming, but comfort's not the goal. And we will always be stuck in our prison without walls and without windows as long as we are not able to receive the word of the Lord. He will come to you in familiarity. He will also come to you in foreignness. He'll speak to you through your spouse and it will be the area that you think you're great at. And you'll think, I've got this. I remember the verse, I memorized it. And you go to the scripture and you look for the things. Look, we talked about hearing the word of the Lord and reading the Bible and we go to it, but here's the problem. You could read it and be totally blind to it because you're only looking for familiarity and you're not submitting yourself to foreignness that God will speak to you in a way that you're not used to because the identity thing is so powerful you don't even see the glasses you put up on in the morning. And so the glasses become the lens by which you receive or refute words or whether or not they're true or not. And you, you allow your comfort or your walls or the things that you're comfortable in to dictate. But there's a balance because there's, the Lord has come so that he would, he would create a love of the Lord and a fear of the Lord. Somebody say, how do you have the love of the Lord and the fear of the Lord at the same time? Get married. That's love of your spouse and fear of your spouse. I had a great quote the other day from Danny Silk. He says, the new covenant, the old covenant was something that was governed on the outside. The new covenant is something that's governed on the inside. Your spouse or your friends have the ability to guide you with their eyes. To to show you what it is that has, is, is, is causing them to feel love and connection, those that are having disconnection. The power of love rather than law is so much more powerful. He can do so much more in the spirit than what he's accomplished in the law. And that if we could be conformed by the, the desire to love and covenantally love the people around us and our spouses, there's so much more power for transformation, so much more power for, for change. And the love of the Lord and the fear of the Lord, the ability to to have both of those things, to have respect and friendship at the same time, is profoundly important for our growth and for our change. And so I just want to just practice for a moment. Here are some passages. And we did passages last time, and I thought it was great. These are some identity passages. And what I want to invite you guys to do is I read these three identity passages. I'll invite the band to come up um, as we close. But I want us to to really grapple with the fact that these passages are passages you've read before. And they're going to be passages you're going to be tempted, and in good reason, to see as familiar passages, as things you would check the box on and say, I already know. But faith is not a yes or no sport. It's not a true or false. It's not a litmus test of in or out. Faith is a process. It's a gift. It's a cultivated thing that grows over time and should never stop. The problem is that oftentimes we kind of have our story back in college of when we stepped away from our old life and stepped into our new, and that was the big place of transitional change. But since then, we don't really have any change because we familiarize ourselves to our own expense. So what if we read these passages, just three of them, starting in 1 John 3, 1, and we noted the fact that we're familiar with them and that we know they're true in us, but we also allowed the Holy Spirit to be different from us and followed Rahab. Sometimes there's... There's an alarming sense of faith that Rahab has that some of the people in Israel didn't have for 40 years because they were so complacent and they were familiar with God without fearing it. And Rahab allows and, and has to, she's forced by way of her circumstance to receive the word of the Lord in foreignness. Lord, I don't know what you're like. Lord, you're a mystery. No, I'm, I'm, I don't act like a son all the time. No, I, I don't act like a daughter all the time. God, show me. God, I'm willing to listen to... Somebody that sounds offensive or different from me. Somebody's a little more of a T than a J in the Myers Briggs, a little bit more of a, of a law person versus a grace person or a little more spirit-filled. I, I'm, I'm gonna listen to it to see if you're there, because I'm not there yet. And God, the point is I don't want to just be comforted. I want to be I wanna be conformed to your image. I want to look like you. I want. I oh, want my family and my friends are too important for me not to be growing. Time is too precious for not to st- taking steps. I don't just want to get to the Bible to be comforted of all where I already am. I want it to speak to me that I might go where I didn't think I could go and be where I didn't think I could be. I want a story that's impossible without God. I want people to read my life one day and say, how did that happen to that person? It's so few and far between the power of identity to Im- immunize us from the foreignness of, of the word of God. First John 3, 1. See what the kind of love the Father has given us. We're thankful for that love, and we know some of it, but we don't know all of it. Sure, there's things about God's love that we don't get yet. I bet you there's parts of his grace that if we were to lay down what we have in order to get what we don't yet have, I wonder if he probably wouldn't leave our hands empty. He'd probably give us something if we laid something down at his altar. He'd always want to exchange beauty for ashes. He'd always want to give us more. But the very wall of what I know protects me from what I don't, and I don't receive what I don't have because I'm too clinging on to what I have, my paradigm. I think I know it all. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that they didn't know him. Beloved, you are children now. Don't ever lose your sense of identity, but also understand your your six-year-old self is not as mature as your 13-year-old self as your 20-year-old self, and that we would never look back and say, I didn't grow that I just look back and I'm still the same person. I still want to be being a child. I want to grow as a child. I want to get stuck in infancy. Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. We need to be aware and awake of other theologies and streams of thought. Predestination pops right off the page. And we have a sense of like, I know the answer to this. But what if there's a blessing hitting if we just say, well, we don't. And maybe there's a side of God that he's going to reveal to us, and probably that's the thing, not the, I'm going to do better, try harder, take harder steps in faith. What if it's just a releasing and a turning that I transform the way of my mind instead of just trying harder to walk the opposite direction? And I actually see a fullness of God. We're so small and tight with our belief systems, with our theologies, that we pin God in a corner and we don't experience all of them simply because we just like the book on our shelf, and we said we read it 20 years ago, and that's all that I'm ever going to believe. Maybe that's not the kind of belief he's talking about. Maybe that's not the kind of faith that that Rahab practiced. Last one, First Peter two nine. But you are a chosen race. Do I know what that means? A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do I really understand what holiness is? I mean, there's two different roads here. I can define holiness and then feel comfortable, with it, or I can really let God just be holy and be Him, and maybe He would just transform my life from the inside out. And the very thing and circumstance that I'm asking to change, He actually needs to change inside of me before it actually comes through me and changes my circumstance. And I'm begging over here, like God changed my circumstance, He's saying, no, I want to change you, so you can go into your circumstance do you know what a royal priesthood is? I'll tell you the truth, he will speak it to you if you go to him saying you don't know what it is. He doesn't leave questions unanswered in that way, but if you go to him and you know the answer, don't be surprised if you don't hear anything. A holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Let me close with this. I just believe that we're in a season right now in our church. I mean, right? Facts are facts. This has been a difficult, trying, hard season. But seasons come and they go. And like school, you go to school for four years and then you go to graduation for one day and you just think, wow, it's over. Like Seasons are seasons because they end and they don't really warn you when they end and they're just over. And there's an opportunity at the graduation day to either look back and say, I just kind of like tried to make it. Or there's, this, there's a way to look back and say, I really dwelled well in that season and I allowed myself to be surrendered to it. So many times in all of our seasons, and I'm not just talking about church, we kind of huddle in the corner and just try and get by. But what if we looked at each season as an opportunity to say, Lord, I don't know what I don't know. I have faith, but help my unbelief. I need to grow. I want you guys to be here next week. I'm I'm just gonna close this series and I wanna talk specifically about faith. And I really think that maybe it might be pertaining to some of you guys of what happens to faith when it's in delay. Like when you're waiting on it and when you're discouraged and when you're confused. What do you do when you have faith for things that haven't happened yet? What do you do when you have faith for things in yourself that you feel like no matter what you do, you just can't change? I want you to be praying about that this week. I want you to be praying for this church this week. And I want you to think about, look, we don't have all the cards and we don't decide the curriculum and when it ends, but we do have control over the posture of our heart. God, we're the student, we're not the teacher. And we don't set the curriculum and say when the season ends, but we have the opportunity to learn. Let's stand and I just wanna pray for us quickly as we respond in worship. But God, I thank you for faith that's a gift and we, we don't have to earn even faith We just let go of our doubt and then we find it's there. You've designed us as children to have faith. And so thank you for childlikeness and not haughtiness and closed-mindedness and religiosity, but a faith that's open, a faith that's learning, a faith that's listening. And God, maybe we be students that you might be our teacher, that we might hear from you and not only be hearers, but doers as well. We thank you for that kind of faith that you might conform us to the very image and stature of Christ. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks for exalting Jesus with us.